It is my pleasure to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Leon Kursik. Dr. Kursik is a board-certified dermatologist, graduated with honors from State University of New York of Health Science Center in Brooklyn, uh, after completing his undergraduate work, Phi Beta Kappa at New York University. He also completed Mohs Micrographic Surgery and Cutaneous Oncology Fellowship under the auspices of Dr. Frederick Mohs at the University of Wisconsin. After completing his dermatology residency from the State University of New York at Buffalo. Uh, a great speaker, a great supporter of PAs. I'd like to bring up Dr. Kersick. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me back to your summer meeting. Uh, we're going to take a look at the wound healing today. And um, I do a lot of clinical studies. This is my conflict of interest statement. So. Since I do a lot of clinical studies, I do receive funding from several different pharmaceutical companies, including Ortonutrigena and BioLife, which are the supporters of the clinical studies that I will discuss within the next 30 to 45 minutes. Now, you know, when we speak about wounds, most people think about those large ulcers, the cupidi ulcer or uh, diabetic ulcers. But actually, in dermatology, we create wounds every day, 20, 30, 40 times a day. And I'm just going to tell you how. We don't, we're not even aware of the wounds that we create. Every time you do a shave biopsy, you're actually creating a wound. You do an excision, you're creating a wound. If you do Mohs, you're certainly creating a wound. If you do cryosurgery, you know, hundreds of times a week for AKs, for warts, you're creating a wound. For those of us who do cosmetic stuff with all the ablative lasers, glycolic peels, um, TCA pills, we are creating wounds. Even if you treat somebody with Epidex or even with retin-A, with the epithelial um, retinization, you are actually creating a wound. So you get the message. Every day we are creating wounds. When we say wounds, it doesn't have to be these big, large, ugly wounds. Now, when you create a wound, subconsciously you're actually making a decision what you're going to do with that wound. Uh, even though you might not be aware of it, right? When you do a punch biopsy, do you put a stitch or not? What do you do? Do you have to put a suture? When you do MOS, do you have to do these big flaps and grafts, or you can just let it go and heal by itself? Now, with the coming health, uh, you know, with the healthcare changes, in uh, insurance changes, with new cost containment, you got to think about it because you don't even get paid when you put a suture for a punch biopsy. Did you know that? Uh, a suture costs about five, six bucks. If you're doing it sterilely, now you're up to $12, $13 a tray for a surgical tray. And you're doing a punch biopsy, you're getting paid 45, 50 bucks, if you're lucky, depending on where you are. And it may not be that worthwhile to put a suture every time you do a punch biopsy. Now, with the insurances costing the, uh, shifting the cost to the patients, every time you do an excision, do you really have to close it and put stitches? You know, it's not anymore $20, $30 copay. Now, the copays are 20 30% with high deductibles. So every time you do a closure after an excision, you may be charging that patient out of pocket 80 90 maybe more than $100. So there are a lot of considerations that go into the decision-making process. And usually I actively talk to the patient, what do you want to do? The decision should be made between the provider 
and the, um, and the patient actively, not just like automatically, okay, let's do a big fancy flap or graft. There is no right or wrong answer, but I think it should be something that we should think about it more consciously. Now, sometimes, you know, there are no choices. You have to do it. You have a patient who is on Coumadin, who is a pacemaker. You cannot use an electrocautery, or it's hard to use an electrocautery. They are maybe, you cannot use lidocaine with epinephrine. Now, I call those people double whammy, triple whammy. You better not send them out of the office without a stitch, because they, you're going to get that phone call at midnight. I'm bleeding, doctor. But on the other hand, you have a healthy... 90-year-old man in a wheelchair, you cannot even transfer him to the surgical chair. Do you really want to do a closure? The man is already tired after the three, four hours of most micrographic surgery, and then you're going to wait another couple of hours for the closure. Is it worth it to do that? I mean, he doesn't care about the cosmetic appearance. So there are a lot of considerations. Think about your back. You want to do that surgery, bending down and killing your back for the next 15, 20 minutes, putting stitches... So there are a lot of considerations that go into it. Um, so once you make that decision that you're not going to put stitches, you're not going to do a closure, then you have to decide how you're going to take care of that wound. Again, automatically, usually what we do in our offices, what we've been doing, put some a little bit of topical antibiotic, right? Polysporin, neosporin, bacitracin, whatever we've been do- using, and then put a Band-Aid, send them home and give the rest of that little package of the bacitracin or the neosporin. Well, think about that now. Um, We have created a lot of antibiotic resistance. You know, when it comes to acne, we discuss this very actively. The oral antibiotic use is rampant in dermatology offices. We are the biggest offenders for uh, creating resistance, antibiotic resistance. We talk about the topical clindamycin, all the acne treatments that causes the antibiotic resistance, but we have not discussed so far the topical antibiotic that we've been cre- antibiotic resistance that we've been creating with overuse of topical neosporin, polysporin, bacitracin, bactroban. Every day, how many biopsies do you do a day? I do 20, 30, 40 biopsies a day. I, do seven, I see 70, 80 patients a day. At least 40% gets a biopsy. So can you imagine that much use of topical antibiotic ointments? Actually, now in New Zealand, there is MRSA resistance for Bactroban. Bactroban. So it's really important to think about it. And I know most of us are still using polysporin or bacitracin after a biopsy. Now, then, contact dermatitis, right? A couple of years ago, the contact dermatitis people, every year they come up with the winner who's the, year, uh, the allergen of the year. And neomycin has been the allergen of the year for the last couple of years in a, year, uh, in a row. It's the biggest winner. And I bet you next will be polysporin. I already see people allergic to polysporin. And then Bactroban or Bacitracin. So it's coming to our way. A lot of the patients are becoming allergic to those topical antibiotic ointments. And then they call you, doctor, I'm infected. Actually, they are not infected. They, are, uh, contact, uh, they have contact dermatitis. Or they go to the ER. You get this phone call from the ER doctor. You know your patient is infected. It's really not infected. It's really... Um, it's really contact dermatitis. Now, why are we using topical antibiotic ointment? Are we really using it to prevent infection? Not really. Honestly, how many times do you get an infection for a biopsy? Maybe once a year? Maybe twice a year. Even if you spit on it, it's not going to get infected. Those wounds heal fast, really. Especially on the face, things will heal really nicely. 
the extremities, the fingers, the toes, you know, it, it's a little bit difficult for them to heal. But on the face, no matter what you cut, you spit on them, it's going to heal. You really don't need a topical antibiotic. Um, so it's important to have these considerations when you make that decision. All right. Now, once you decided that you're going to let that wound to heal by itself, you're not going to use a topical antibiotic, what are you going to do? Um, you have to pick something that's a little bit cosmetically acceptable. Uh, you have to pick something that works pretty well and you want it to work fast because people don't like to wear band-aids on their faces, especially for the next two, three, four weeks. Uh, and you also want something that's not going to cause itching, irritation, stinging, burning, all those topical side effects that we get with other stuff. Now, why are we, by the way, let's go back for a second, why are we using those topical antibiotics? So we are not really using for prevention of infection. Most of them don't get infected. Why are we using it? We are using it because they are nice ointments. We are using it for their occlusive properties, not really for their antibiotic properties. We are using it because it occludes the wound. We know that if you occlude a wound, you keep nice and moist environment, that wound is going to heal much faster. And that's because that's scientifically proven. You don't want a scab formation. If you form a scab, then the epithelial cells are not going to be able to migrate towards the side of the wound or vice versa, and you're not going to have re-epithelialization of the wound. You don't want scab formation. Despite the fact that most of the people in public think that it's good to let the wounds open to air, to air it, as they call in Kentucky, where I live. And then uh, most of the dermatologists, still there are some old-time dermatologists that they think that's good too. So really, you don't want that wound to be open to air. You don't want a scab formation. You want a nice, moist environment for the epithelial cells to migrate. There is a scientific reason for that. And if you have that scab, it's not going to happen. This is Dr. Frederick Moss, where I did my Moss Micrography Fellowship in Wisconsin. This is when he was 85. That's the birthday gift that we gave it, I mean, the birthday card that we gave it to him. And he was the biggest believer of uh, second intention healing. And remind you that he's not even a dermatologist. He was a general surgeon. So general surgeons like to cut and to close, to put stitches. But he was the biggest believer of second intention healing. He thought that every wound can heal by itself as long as the patient is healthy, their nutritional status is okay, you know, they are not diabetic, they're going to heal. And this is Lake Mendota. This is Madison, Wisconsin. You can see the state capital in the background. And this is where I did my fellowship. This is the most micrographic surgery unit. Now, um, we did... Um, okay, let me just go back for a second. This is the study that shows that if you let the wounds heal in a nice, moist environment, it's going to heal much faster then you let it open to air. Um, now, we did uh, about 40 cases, 40 patients each morning on each side of the aisle. There were two uh, attendings on each side, and we saw about 40 people every morning. You can imagine that there is no way on earth you can close 40 cases every afternoon. So maybe two, three got closed by us, Two, three went to plastic surgeon. Two, three went to oculoplastic surgeon. Two, three went to urology or OBGYN if we did genital areas. Two, three went to uh, ENT. So you can imagine about 25 or so got closed, got healed by second intention healing. 
So the first time when I was there, I saw those things the first couple of months. I thought, these people are crazy. How you can let this wound open and what's going to happen? But it's amazing how things heal. So this is one of the first cases. You can see it's less than, a, less than one centimeter small squamous cell carcinoma. And this is, by the way, after several stages of mole surgery. Now, unfortunately, we are known as people to give big holes to patients. As Dr. Mose used to say, you know, he wasn't very politically correct, and he can afford not to be politically correct. So he would say, I didn't put the cancer there. I took it out. That's how we ended up with the big hole. But, you know, you can, it's sort of correct. You know, we cannot say that anymore to patients. They'll be so upset as insensitive doctor. Sometimes I say it. They say, oh, God, he's so insensitive. He's from New York. But, you know, <laughs> you know when you're in Kentucky, that's, that's the biggest blame you get. Oh, he's from New York. He's obnoxious. But... Uh, so I learned my lesson. I don't say that. I, I say, you know, your cancer is like a tip of the iceberg. You see the tip of the iceberg now. When you go down, you don't know what's going to happen. It's like the roots of the tree. So I'm trying to get the, can- the roots of the cancer out. I'm sorry. That's why you ended up with a big hole. So I learned my lesson. But anyway, so they let this wound to heal by itself. And I thought, oh, my God, this man is never going to heal during my fellowship, and I'm here a whole year, and this was the beginning. Look at this. This is about four or five weeks, maybe, and this is 12 weeks, three months. Things heal even if you spit on them, on the face. Trust me. So it's amazing how things heal. All right, so second intention healing is not crazy. It's really acceptable way of to let things heal. You don't have to do these big fancy flaps or grafts. Um, and as long as the patient is okay with that, I think it will be fine. The important thing is that you do not want the scap formation. You want that wound nice and moist, covered, so that it will heal. Otherwise, yes, you will run into trouble if there is scap formation, unlike some doctors would recommend. Now, the wound healing is actually very similar to aging process because what happens is with the photoaging, you create an inflammation the same way that you create an inflammation by creating a wound. And then the body's response to that inflammation will be the, um, the cytokine production, the inflammation, and then the granulation, and then finally the scar formation. So it's all a very similar process. What happens is as you get older, you cannot repair that wound. You cannot repair that collagen. You lose that ability and then you end up getting the wrinkles. The same way that old people, if they are too old or their nutritional system is not good or they have diabetes for one reason or another, they are not able to repair that wound and you run into trouble. That's what happens with the diabetic ulcers, with the decubiti ulcers. So you have a lot of trouble with the wound healing for different reasons. But there are certain stages of the wound healing, just like the uh, when photoaging happens and then the collagen degrade collagen repair takes place. And if that repair is not perfect, then you end up with wrinkles. It's the same story. It's a very parallel story. It's very interesting. So first you have the inflammation. Of course, you have hemostasis. Then you have the inflammation. Then you have the granulation. And then finally you have the collagen reformulation and the scarring. So those are the stages that that we go through for wound healing. in, in between, you have all those inflammatory factors, the cytokine production, that the growth factors that contribute to the wound healing. Um, 
So the first product that I'm going to introduce you, actually, it's not a brand new product. It's trolamine sodium. It's BFN that has been around for now a couple of years. It came to us from France. They use this a very, um, uh, it's a very common product that they use in France, and it was actually approved for radiation dermatitis in France. It's their sort of their neosporin, actually. And they use it for uh, sunburns. They use it for everything. It came to USA uh, as a 510K device. It's approved by 510K device, so it's really not a medicine, but it's a prescription product. And the indication are pressure sores, dermal ulcers, full thickness wounds, minor abrasion, radiation dermatitis, you name it. Now, ironically, because it's a 510K device, there is no active ingredient in it. But let me just go through what's in it. Number one, demineralized water. Now, you're going to what's going on, demineralized water. You know, French are famous to bottle the water and sell it for two, three bucks a bottle, right? The Evian is the biggest scam, but people buy it and two, three bucks a bottle. Come on. Um, this, the same thing here, what they did was they took the demineralized water and they made a medicine out of it. But if you, I didn't know this, 41% the penetra penetrates to the skin's dermal um, level within one hour of the application, which is different than the regular water. Okay, so now you have a faster hydration there. On top of the trolamine sodium alginate, it really helps macrophage proliferation and stimulation. So that helps the wound healing. Remember, the first stage of the wound is the uh, inflammation when you get the macrophages in there and then the granulation starts. So it is important that you have that stimulation of the uh, macrophages. So... Um, the same thing again here, we, we went over the stages of the wound healing, inflammation, proliferation, and maturation. So when you have something that's going to make those processes faster, then you're going to let that wound heal faster. Very simple. So what it does is, it actually, they were able to show in vitro studies that it recruits three to ten times the number of the macrophages to the wound site, as well as it recruits them faster within the first four to 24 hours rather than the first 48 to 72 hours. So that's a big difference when you're talking about wound healing. They did some studies. They compared it to white petrolatum to Vaseline. And in every stage, actually, uh, Biofin did better than the Vaseline because, you know, it makes sense. You can use some Vaseline because it also has an occlusive, um, occlusive property, right? Uh, so it actually increases endothelial cell proliferation. It does help the... Uh, collagen synthesis, as well as the has some factor on the cytokines, especially IL-1 alpha and IL-6. And when you, they compared it to Vaseline, it was not significant, statistically significant in those areas. Now, uh, so we have, uh, we have uh, in summary, we have some information that basically it does have a nice, faster moisturizing effect, but it also does help the granulation uh, by increasing the macrophage stimulation, by uh, recruiting the macrophages, more macrophages, as well as faster. Now, well, you know, things work very well in the test tube, but doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to work on live people. I always say that otherwise everything that worked in the test tube would have become a medication now. Uh, usually it's one out of five that gets to the market. How about I said, okay, can we see, is there any evidence that this, this works really in real life? So we went ahead and we did a couple of studies, and I'm going to sort of give you a summary of all those studies that were done. Some of us are by me, some of us by other investigators, and show that 
how does that apply to dermatology. But before I do that, I want to discuss a little bit radiation dermatitis because of the traditional use of this medicine was in radiation dermatitis. That's how it started in France. And really, with radiation dermatitis, with radiation, you're creating a wound. The same idea again. So it's, it's a common problem. You know, we don't see it as much in our offices unless you're working with an oncologist, unless you're a big oncology center or a hospital, you get to see them. But you need, you need private practice. I mean, I don't get to see radiation dermatologists that often, maybe once or twice a year if somebody sends them over to me. But it's a common, it's a common problem 90% of the time with breast cancer, especially radiation dermatitis is a very big problem. And not only it causes patient discomfort, which they become really miserable, but most importantly, it, it sort of interrupts the treatment cycle. And that's the worst thing that can happen because you don't want to interrupt when you're doing cancer treatment. You don't want the cancer cells to recuperate and come back. You want to get, you know, hit hard, boom, 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 on a certain period. So if you interrupt that radiation, you really are losing the battle against the cancer cells. So you don't want to interrupt that um, radiation treatment. So we're going to look at that. Now, there are a lot of different factors that causes the radiation dermatitis, the number of the treatments, the amount of the dose that you're giving, the fractionation factors, the, um, the area that you're giving. So there are a lot of things that, honestly, I don't understand because I don't do that stuff. But again, none of us do. But there are a lot of different factors that go to it. And there are a lot of different grades of the radiation dermatitis, zero being none, one being mild erythema, all the way to real ulcers and dermal ulcers, full thickness dermal ulcers being grade four and something in, you know, in between. Um, so the bottom line is it's a frequent occurring problem for those breast cancer patients, especially if they are nutritionally not well balanced if they are getting chemotherapy at the same time, and, uh, and it's a problem. And again, it is like a physiological wound, and that's why it's very appropriate for this medicine to look at it and compare it to um, physiologic other, other type of wounds that we create. So what they did was they looked at, the, they did a couple of studies, and they compared it to Vaseline, and certainly Vaseline had no effect on the two of the four parameters and really, it worked pretty well for radiation dermatitis patients, and it prevented the, not only it helped them, but it also prevented the radiation dermatitis, and it sort of did um, not let the treatment to be interrupted, which is the most important thing. So it didn't let all the way go to, let's say, level three or grade three or grade four. It was able, they were able to stop it earlier on that the patients can tolerate, maybe just with mild erythema or so. So the bottom line is, it helped those patients. So, well, that's fine and dandy. How is it going to help me? Because I don't do radiation dermatitis. I don't do radiation. And uh, I wanted to see how is it going to make a difference in our daily practice. So I, the first thing, being a Mohs micrographic surgeon, and I wanted to see if it's going to help the Mohs wounds that will I let it open and let it heal with second intention healing. So, and I thought that it would be a nice comparison against just a topical antibiotic ointment since that's what I have been using at that time. So you can do a head-to-head -head study. So this was a 12-week single-center study. It was done in my office. In, uh, I have a clinical research center where I do my studies. And it was investigator-blinded, so my coordinator was not blinded. 
the patients were not blinded, but I was blinded, so I didn't know who got what. We had 25 patients. The inclusion criteria was most micrographic surgery for non-melanoma skin cancers on the head and neck area with a 1.5 centimeter of final wound size. And um, so we had, uh, and then we looked at those patients, of course, at baseline, week three, week six, and week 12. We also looked at investigator global assessment of the wound healing. We also looked at the application site problems such as redness, irritation, stinking, burning, you know, scarring your normal topical application site reactions. Also, the patients evaluated them. Now, the bottom line is when you look at the wound size, the group one is the group that uh, got the BFN treatment, and group two is the topical antibiotic ointment. So the baseline was very similar. Actually, ironically, the, one, uh, the BFN group had a larger uh, wound size at the baseline, but it didn't matter really. And you can see that by week three, that wound size goes down to 22 um, square millimeters versus 28 for the, uh, for the antibiotic ointment group. Uh, by week six now, everybody's wound was closed in um, the BFN group, but in the antibiotic ointment group, it was still, the wound was open. By week 12, everybody's wound closed. As I said, every wound is going to close eventually. The question is, which one is going to make it close faster? This is a, uh, I, I think this was a basal cell on the superior helix. This is the baseline. And this is week three, already the wound is closed. The patient probably did not follow instructions to put a Band-Aid on all the time. So you can see a tiny bit of a scab there, but it's all done by uh, week three. Now, when you look at the investigator global assessment, again, the first three weeks is the time when you see the biggest difference. 66% in the BFN group, they considered it very effective versus 41% in the topical ointment group. That gap is getting smaller as you get along in week six and week 12. So the bottom line is you have something here that works faster, has a faster onset of action compared to your topical antibiotic ointment. Because by week 12, everything is closing. Really, more or less, there is not much big difference. That big difference you're seeing is early on at week three, early onset of action. That's the key here. When you look at the application site assessments, again, there is less erythema in the BFN group, and then erosion was a little bit higher in the uh, antibiotic ointment group. Inflammation was less in the BFN group, but really nothing that's significant to take home. The only thing that's significant here is really important, early onset of action. The wound is getting smaller or it's closer early on which is very important because, you know, nobody wants to wear a Band-Aid, especially on their face, for six, nine weeks, right? You want to cut that Band-Aid wearing time. The patients will be very happy if they're wearing that Band-Aid for three weeks instead of six weeks or nine weeks. That's really the key here. That's the bottom line. Early onset of action. And that basically makes sense scientifically because, remember, we talked about the microfetch recruitment early on a higher number of age recruitment to the wound, size, wound site. So it does make sense. The scientific, the pathophysiology story leads to the clinical story. It, it, it does match. Well, I said, okay, that's uh, fine, but not everybody does MOS. 
And what is the number one procedure we do in our offices? Biopsies, right? Everybody does biopsies, shave biopsies especially. How is it going to work in shave biopsies? So here then we decided a single center, again in my clinical center, open label study. Of course, all those studies by IRB approved. I always, I don't touch anybody without IRB approved consent form. So those are all IRB approved consent form uh, studies. And the inclusion criteria was very simple. Any biopsy on the head and neck area, shave biopsy. And then now we got a little bit bolder here. You know, instead of waiting three weeks, I wanted to see since I know that it's working faster, what's going to happen in a week? If I bring the patient back in a week, what's going to, that biopsy site, what's it going to look like? And then, of course, we brought them back in two weeks and four weeks. So we shortened the whole period from, uh, you know, 12 weeks to four weeks with the first visit being one week instead of three weeks. And then, of course, we measured the wound size, and then we looked at the regular application site problems that I already mentioned, irritation, stinking, burning, all that stuff. Now, at the baseline, uh, at week one, basically we had almost 51% wound size reduction. So half of the wound was already closed in, by week one, by week two, 85%, by week four, 100%. Again, you're seeing a really early onset of action. Things are working faster. Uh, this is the baseline. This is week one, week two, week, uh, week, I'm sorry, week three, week four. So things are working faster. That's it. And you, when you plot the diagram, you can see that there is a nice, um, there is a nice, I, I'm not going to do this, but basically the inclination, the slope here, the decline, I'm sorry, the decline, the slope is pretty steep in the first two weeks. That's where the action is taking place. After the second week to four weeks, the, the slope is not that sharp. So the decline is really the first two weeks. Again, it ties the whole story with the basic signs, with the Mohs wound, and now with the shave biopsies. So it's a persistent story that your decline in the wound size the first two weeks, early onset of action, that's the key here. If you look at the uh, investigator global assessment, you have very effective uh, treatment, about 35%, 50% moderately effective. That number is getting larger by week two. Almost more than half of the patients or subjects, I should say, very effective treatment. And then 46% moderately effective treatment. Again, the same thing repeating itself. Early onset of action with BFE. Okay, that's great. How about what other ways we can use this product? So I thought about that the most miserable patients almost in, in dermatology are the patients that we treat their actinic keratosis with Effidex, right? They get really red and sore and scaly. My own father told me, what kind of a crook doctor you are, you, what you did to my face. So it happens all the time, you know. If your own father is going to say that, you can imagine what the paying customers are going to tell you. So... I thought that, and I used to use a lot of 5-FU-Effidex, uh, so what can we do to make these people less miserable? Because, you know, it's a nice product. And um, what we did was we wanted to see how it works if we use the BFN uh, compared to Vaseline. And uh, so we had about 23 subjects. Again, it was investigator-blinded. So in this case, it was, um, I was blinded. And we had four different groups. The other... Um, the other agent that we use, instead of the uh, Effidex, we also use Carac, which is, as you know, it's 0.5% uh, 5-FU. 
and we thought that that might have a little bit less inflammation, maybe it will work differently. So we had four groups. First group got randomized into Efidex plus Vaseline, Efidex plus, second group was Efidex plus Biofin, third group Carac plus Vaseline, and fourth group was, um, or vice versa here, uh, Efid, uh, Carac plus white, um, uh, Biofin. So you got the message. Basically four groups, two different drugs, and two different agents. Okay? And we looked at the investigator global assessment of the healing. Uh, and then we also looked at the erythema, erosion, ulceration. Again, all those application side effects that the same standard every study that we've been doing. So here, the way it was designed, you had to have at least one cosmetic area of involvement and you had to have at least three AKs, three actinic keratosis in each cosmetic unit. Every cosmetic unit considered as either forehead, nose, each cheeks, or the chin and the upper lip area. So then we gave the patients, they were randomized either Efidex or Carac. They went home for two weeks. They used the product. They came back at the end of the two weeks. If they had inflammation, then they were randomized to either Vaseline or Biofin. If they had no inflammation, there is nothing to measure. So we send them home again. They used it for two more weeks. At the end of the four weeks, they came back. We evaluated them again. If they had inflammation, they were randomized either to BFN group or Vaseline group. If they had no inflammation, they were dropped off. They were screen failures, okay? Now, this is at the randomization. Uh, at the end of the two weeks, this is, I believe, a Efidex patient, and it was, he was randomized to BFN. And here is, at week two, he's crystal clear. So again, you can see that er this will never happen with Vaseline. Uh, so you can see that early onset of action with this topical. So the healing is faster. Week eight, still perfect. Now, one interesting thing that happened in the study, which we were not expecting, and things happen in the studies uh, that you don't expect when you design them, Carac people had more reaction than the Efidex people. And that happens, I guess. So we looked at those patients differently. We took the Carac people out because they had more significant inflammation than the Efidex. So we looked at separate as a subgroup analysis. When you do the subgroup analysis with the Carac group, 40% of the subjects treated with BFN were either completely healed or almost healed compared to none of the Vaseline groups. And then 40% of the subjects treated were BFN um, were completely healed compared to 16% of the patients treated with Vaseline. So there was a lot of difference when you had a lot of inflammation between the BFN and the Vaseline group. On the other hand, if you look at the overall group, including both Carac and Efidex patients, there wasn't much, and there was not much inflammation, the difference between the two groups with BFN and Vaseline wasn't as much. Because when you have nothing to measure, then you have nothing to show. You cannot show any effect. You cannot show difference between the two groups. But it's still, BFN group did better. In this case, about 36% of the subjects treated with the BFN were completely healed or almost healed versus the 25% at week two, by the way, early on. And then 54% of the subjects treated with BFN 
had marked healing versus 42% of the subjects treated with Vaseline, Vaseline at week two. So again, there was difference, but the difference wasn't that big when the inflammation wasn't that much. So you always have to have something to measure in order to show a difference between two products. When the measurement is not that much, the difference is not gonna be that bad, that much. But when the Karak people had more inflammation, the difference was much better here when you see 40% with BFN group were completely healed versus none in the Vaseline group at week two. I just wanna make sure that's, that's clear that I need to emphasize that. Now, on the other hand, on the other side of the um, coast, Dr. Del Rosso did a study because remember, and I said, every time you do cryosurgery, you freeze an AK, you're gonna create a wound too. So, and that can be by freezing, that can be by Epidex, no matter what you're using, you're creating a wound. So what he did was, he picked, um, he did a split face uh, or split body study, and he picked four target areas, dorsal of the hands, dorsal of the forearms, and the forehead and the cheeks. And he had about 40 patients, I believe, and um, one side got um, biofin, and one side got a, a moisturizer. And then they applied it for twice a day, and then they had a, also a diary when the, patient, when, they, when the patient saw healing. And then the patients actually came at four weeks, and then they looked at the time to heal. So here you can see that, and then you know, at different areas, dorsal hands, dorsal forearms, forehead, and... Um, and the cheeks, you can see all different uh, time of healing. Well, the BFM patients did much, much better. I think there was significant difference between the, at the forehead and then a little bit less on the uh, cheeks and the dorsum of the hands. But again, the patients in the BFM group, they healed faster than the moisturizer group. Now, I'm sort of repeating by it myself, but it's sort of nice to see consistent persistent results. In every study you're seeing the same theme, it's repeating itself. That every time you use this product, you have an earlier onset of action. At the most wounds, shave biopsies, Epidex treatment with five, uh, for AKs, cryosurgery for AKs, every time the product is performing faster, with a faster of onset of action, which is supported by the pathophysiology Again, remember with the wound healing, the original in vitro study with the increased rate of microphage retention, uh, recruitment and more microphage recruitment with faster onset of microphage recruitment within two, two, 4 to 24 hours instead of the 48 hours to 72 hours. So the whole thing is supported by basic science. Now, all the clinical studies are supported by what's going on in basic science, which is nice to see because in dermatology, most of the things, we don't know how they work. So that's really the bottom line here that um, you, got, you have a new agent that, is a faster answer, that has a faster answer of action that you can use in wound healing, either, in, either Vaseline, instead of either Vaseline or topical antibiotic ointment. And I think that's important because with the cost containment, with more insurance scrutiny on us, when they're gonna question every graft or flap or every closure, why did you do this doctor, when you can let it heal by itself, why did you cost more expense? Um, we will be questioned very soon 
what we are doing, why we are doing every step of the time, you have to be able to justify why you're doing that flap and graft when you can let th things heal by itself. Number one. Number two, we already know and we have contributed to antibiotic resistance, so it will be nice not to contribute to that so the other specialties don't look at us, especially infectious disease people, that we contribute antibiotic resistance. And it will be really nice to avoid contact dermatitis and to keep those antibiotic ointments when we really need them, when there is really infection to treat them. So the last study I'm going to discuss is a hemostatic powder. This is called Q powder. This is also a new product. It's a 510K device. And uh, compared to gel foam, which is the most common hemostatic agent that we use. And this is a potassium iron salt with a hydrofolic polymer. And it basically makes a physical seal, and that's how it stops um, uh, bleeding. It's actually been widely used on, uh, in the U.S. Army, believe it or not. And it is, again, a 510K device. It's approved by FDA as a 510K device for external minor bleeding and uh, or for procedures for one reason or another. There is a questionable uh, antibiotic effect that's not proven. That it might have it or it might not have it. So this was done in my center also. You cannot do this study blinded. It's unbelievable. You cannot just do it uh, when you're dealing with bleeding. You cannot be blinded. So I was not blinded in this study. We had 24 subjects. And basically, the primary endpoint is, was time to hemostasis. So after the, MOS, uh, the inclusion criteria was MOS wounds, uh, and um, we had to uh, head and neck area, non-melanoma skin, skin cancers. The wound size had to be somewhere between half centimeter to two centimeters. And then the caveat here that 50% of the subjects had to be on an anticoagulant. Aspirin, NSAIDs, Coumadin, Plavix, which really does uh, create problems for us most of the time. Most of elderly patients are on those products. So interestingly, group one, the people that were on the Q powder, achieved hemostasis about 52.5 seconds after the first level of mole surgery compared to uh, 60 seconds with gel foam. The difference is not that big. Now look what's happening. After the second layer, though, the uh, Q powder people got 32.5 seconds of um, hemostasis versus 120 seconds with the gel form. Remember the Efidex study I said? You have to have something, a measurable uh, reason, in order to show a reasonable difference between the products that you use. So what happens is the bleeding is not that severe after your first cut. The second time around, when you go for second most layer, you're cutting wider and deeper. Guess what? The bleeding is more. When you have more bleeding, you are able to show more effect or more difference between those two products. Again, those are all sort of things that I learn as I go along when you do a clinical study. You know, you take a severe psoriasis patient, you're going to be able to show a better result for that biological or whatever the drug you're using versus you take a mild patient, you won't be able to show that much effect. So it all depends on who you, what you pick. So the measuring, whatever you are measured,
has to be significant in order to show an effect for the treatment. So that's what happened here either, the same deal. And then group one had a median change in wound size about minus 182 square millimeter versus 162 uh, at, uh, for, the, for the gel foam. Um, again, the global assessment was more effective for the, uh, uh, for the Q powder patients versus the uh, gel foam. Um, wound healing was faster and more effective. But really, at the end of the 12 weeks, there wasn't much difference, again, at wound healing. Both groups healed well. So again, the story here is that this product has also early onset of action, especially when it comes to stop the bleeding. So that's, that's important. You don't have to stay there and put pressure or deal with, um, uh, with cautery. By the way, there was no cautery used when we did the hemostasis. It's purely either gel foam or the Q powder. Um, you know. So it is important, uh, especially for those patients, sometimes you cannot use cautery when you have some, uh, you know, um, 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 some electronic device implanted. So the bottom line is, again, you have something new for hemostasis that works pretty well and faster than compared to the standard treatment of gel foam. And scarring-wise, they also did pretty, be uh, pretty better, uh, much better than the gel foam patients. But in all honesty, here we are. I think the times are going to change with what we can do and how much we can do in the future, especially when it comes to closure. So we should be prepared how to handle those wounds, what will be the best way, the least expensive way, with uh, the best results. And I think BFIN uh, will be a, a welcome addition to our armamentarium in the treatment of second intention wounds in the future. Thank you for your attention. If you have any questions, I'll be more than happy to answer. Any questions? Yes. Do you sell the uh, BFine out of your office, or you write a prescription? I don't sell it out of my office. I write a prescription. And if the majority of your cases with Mohs is in the Medicare population, what is the expense to that patient? Most of the time, depending on the, you know, we now with the Medicare Part D, they all have different drug coverage. It's almost impossible to know who has what. So if it's in their drug coverage, then it's covered, but on the other hand, in all honesty, I think it costs about $30, so it's almost like a copay, or less than a copay. And if they take one tube, all those patients, they have several moles, several biopsies. You know, most of the older populations, they keep coming back, get a biopsy every two, three months, so they can use it for a long time. So I don't think coverage has been a problem with that, because it's so cheap. Any other questions? Yes. Bionic, is that the JSJ product? You know, I have not used that. I know, um, God, there's a lady in Philadelphia, uh, Sherry Dietrich. She's done some work with that uh, for Effid with Effidex, actually. Uh, she likes it. I have listened to her, I've talked to her a couple of times, but I personally don't have any experience. And as far as I know, I think that company went bankrupt recently, JSJ.
I might be wrong. Don't quote me on that. Now, I know this is being recorded, but I think that's what happened. Yes. Hi. Yes. Dr. Kursik, um, when using the Biafine post-5-FU, uh, was an occlusive dressing applied there also? Okay. Just apply twice a day. That's it. Yes. The same, the same, but you know, the fingers, the toes, they're gonna heal more, you know, it's gonna take a longer time because of the circulation. Diabetics, lower legs, I don't let the wounds open. I try to close them. Yes, ma'am. Do you find any benefit using biophene on wounds that are sutured? And also, do you um, find that they make wounds hypergranulate more? I'm sorry, so is there a benefit to use it with sutures? Yes. Yeah, because it's the same idea. When you do the suture closure, again, you put some polysporin, neosporin, and then put the band-aid on, right? Same idea, yes. The answer is yes, um, because I do want to avoid that polysporin or neosporin. And then do they hypergranulate? No. At least it didn't happen on the studies. I haven't seen them. Very few patients do hypergranulate. Uh, I had one guy, actually, it, he did but he had a um, pyogenic granuloma. So the disease itself is you know, hypergranulating, so it keeps coming back twice on his lip. But, um, but I think that's the disease itself more than anything else. Thank you. Yes. I'm sorry, they asked me, please, if you can come to the microphone because I think they are um, recording it. Do you ever mix Biofine with Aquaphor? Or do you always use it plain? Do I have not done that. It might not be a bad idea if it's a large area. And I was just wondering if there was, if you noticed a difference, if you had done it or not. I have not done it, in all honesty. But you know, it's not—it's not a bad idea if you have a large area to cover, maybe. I have a question in regards to like your sample size, as far as the BFN studies were fairly small. Sure. Did everybody end up completing the study? Most of the time, maybe we had one or these are not going to FDA for any type of approval. You know, those are some ideas that should, those are done to give us some ideas how to proceed and it does, does it make sense or not. And certainly the theme repeated itself over and over in every study, which is nice to see. And then also, what about allergic reactions? Um, with, you know, bacitracin versus biofine. Have you seen a lot of those? We didn't have any allergic reactions to biofine. I think if I go back, there was one or two with bacitracin, but we did not have any contact allergies with biofine. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? Well, thank you very much.